0: I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening On Purpose. My guest today is Dr. Jeff Myers. Jeff is the executive director of an organization called Summit Ministries, based in Manitou Springs, Colorado. And, well, you might have guessed it, my brother, Obviously, listening is an inescapable part of family relationships, and how do we do that best, especially when we might not agree on key things? Can you relate to that? Well, we're going to dig into that, cancel culture, and a whole lot more. I'm glad you're here. Let's get to it. First of all, I'm just going to set a little scope, right, for why we're talking today. Yeah, I was just realizing how interesting to have a conversation with a family member about listening, right? This is pretty apropos. And one thing that I've always appreciated about our relationship was that we we differ in beliefs on on many key issues. Um, yes. and in some cases, we're probably nearly opposite right of how we might come down on mm-hmm. a b or c but that over the years uh, we've always been able to have really beautiful respectful conversations about these things and about ideas and and I've always felt very valued by you, a, you. and by your listening to me and of me in those contexts and so the other thing is on the second season of the podcast i'm really going deep with moving the needle and in personal interaction uh, and because back to my to my why of we don't begin to solve the world's stickiest problems without creating more listening but that really has to start on the interpersonal level right it has to start your your family your community because that's how you start to actually create transformation and so I'm right. leaning into this idea this season. And so I just thought it would be great for us to have a conversation about how, how do you talk to people with whom you disagree, right? And, and, and what kind of listening is necessary and that we can sort of even model that just a little bit um, in, in the episode, Um, but let's kind of get in maybe a little bit. You you brought up debate, so let's kind of start there and then where you are and how you got there.
1: Mm. Well, competitive debate was sort of my path uh, in the same way that music was your path. Mm -hmm. It was not athletics for me. Uh, I was horrible at every sport that I tried, I was the, the losingest player on the losingest team every time I went out for <laughs> something. <laughs> but I, I remember being caught off guard having to give an oral presentation in eighth grade. And I was so horrified that I wasn't prepared, that I just broke down in tears. My teacher recommended me to the ninth grade speech class, mm. which I took. And found some success there. I found that when I could communicate something, people would listen. They'd find it interesting. I found that affirmation that everybody's looking for as they're going through adolescence. So I signed up for the debate team, did that all the way through high school. Uh, my debate partners and I were fortunate enough to win our state's high school debate tournament, which of course led to college scholarships, which I desperately mm-hmm. needed. And then just continued on with that, and including being a debate coach at the university that had not just the top debate team but the top 3 debate teams oh, wow. in the country mm-hmm. so it was it was quite a quite a journey and in the process i i was fascinated by argument and how how we use argument to come to agreement it changed my whole perspective because i think people believe an argument is equivalent to a quarrel right and quarrels are bad right 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 but what if what if we could reverse that? And we are at a cultural moment, Tim, mm-hmm. where this is mission critical, yeah, totally. I mean your podcast, what you're attempting to do in this season is one of the most difficult things I can imagine. but absolutely the necessary thing,, yeah. at this particular moment. Yep. And I think I understand why a little bit, because if you if you come to a conversation with a set of beliefs, you, you've got to determine at the outset what is your goal? Is my goal to win? Yeah. Is my goal to relate? Is my goal to come up with a pragmatic, well, you have your beliefs, I have my beliefs, let's just figure out how to get along? Right. Or is it to sort of move closer to the truth?
0: And, and what is that truth? I think
1: most people, oh, yeah. right, that's got to be part of the conversation. Yeah. yeah. In every talk, you have to talk about the talk. Mm you know, what, what is that truth? Now we make certain assumptions. You wouldn't enter into a conversation if you didn't think there was something out there that exists truly beyond the two of us, because we use language in a way that shows that we believe that these words represent accurately to some degree, Mm the thoughts and, and things to which we refer. But conversation is so personal and so intimate you know, if you think about two people kissing, the exteriors of their bodies are are touching. But when they're talking with one another, their interiors are touching. Hmm. And that kind of interiority leads to a level of intimacy that can be really uncomfortable if you're coming into the situation knowing you have a profound disagreement with the other person. right. right right? You, in the same way that you wouldn't want the outside of your lips to touch the outside of somebody else's lips if you thought they might hurt mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't want to let that person sort of enter into your mind space if you thought they might hurt yeah. you. So we tend to, as a culture, believe the only way to handle that is to have discussions about ideas at a distance where we're safe mm. from one another. Mm-hmm. So social media came along at exactly the worst possible cultural moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally.
1: When we're disagreeing about everything, including the nature of truth, and then it allows us to feel that we are representing our viewpoint without ever having to enter into the interior of the other person or allow the other person to enter into ours. And then, of course, social media companies figured out how to monetize this. Yeah. And all of a sudden, here we are with with so much shouting and posturing, rather than the conversation we so desperately need. Mm.
0: Yeah. You, no, you bring up some amazing points, and I think we could probably go for an hour kind of mining some of these, but this is one of the things that is top of mind for me, is just the format right now in which we're having these conversations is generally all wrong it's 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 charged in all of the wrong ways right and we're not really creating an environment at all that encourages or enhances real listening like you were saying you know an argument does not have to equal a quarrel and the the faster that we can move past that Assertion that those things are synonymous, the the better off will be. Could you talk a little bit? I've I, I do want to get you have a new book, um, Truth Changes Everything. It's what we, weeks old. I haven't I haven't read it yet, to be honest. So um, <laughs> I have to get get through school my last class in a few weeks, and then I have you some reading can, time. To get through know. school.
1: You have a family. Yeah. You have a job. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, so yeah, so I did. Yeah. I, yeah. Tell us about tell us a little bit about the book.
1: Well well, I wrote the I wrote the book Truth Changes Everything in a time when I, I had been diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. And when you receive that kind of a diagnosis, of course, I grew up thinking if you get cancer you die. Right. That was sort of internally my way of processing this information. So I could hear the doctor say, well, if we treat this aggressively, we have a very good chance of beating it. Mm. But at the same time, my thoughts were wandering to all of those road trips that Stephanie and I wanted to take. And the grandbabies that I hope to hold someday. Mm. There's something about getting a bad health diagnosis, or I suppose bad news of any kind. The bad news about the end of a relationship or the bad news about the end of the road in a particular aspect of your career yeah. or even during covid for the young adults i work with you know 70% of young adults say that their greatest fear is being alone
0: mm.
1: wow and so everything about covid triggered their worst fears when you have that kind of bad news your time frame gets really compressed you realize every phone call you have could be the last Mm -hmm. one with that person. Mm -hmm. Every letter you write could be the last one that you get to write. Every interaction you have, and this is especially true in the cancer center, because there were a lot of people there who were much more sick Mm -hmm. than I was. Mm -hmm. And realizing that some of them weren't even... During the my chemo treatment, they weren't even going to make it to the end of it. That they'd be gone before I finished my treatment. Wow. Your time crane gets really compressed. At the same time, I had this book contract, <laughs> and I had to ask the question, if this is the last thing I ever get to write, is this what yeah. I would write? And so I decided that I would write it, and I would write it not just as a defense of the idea that there is objective truth that's knowable, not easily, but knowable, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I I was interested in that. I kind of went from political science to communication into philosophy in my academic mm-hmm. career so i'm interested in that how do we know anything but at the same time i just decided to go back in history and look at people who i felt were heroic mm. to me because in times of great crisis they stood they stood strong yeah and in this particular book i was focused on people who i called jesus followers mm. you know in church history you would call them uh, christians but I, I thought jesus followers probably better because some of them were fairly rebellious against the church mm, itself right right but they 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 had this belief that they had picked up from jesus that truth exists and it's not just a set of logical propositions it's personal mm. and, and and i just found that so compelling it's like truth and relationship are two strands of the dna double helix that you're really not ever speaking the full truth if you're not relating, and you're not really being a good relator unless there's an element of truth to it. So just in the same sense that those nucleotides connect the two strands of a DNA double helix, then truth and relationship connect. So that was the whole goal of the book. Uh, For some people, I think for my editors, it was kind of a, it was a really tough sell. Mm. Uh, I've never actually had editors say you can't say that kind of kind of wow. thing. Wow! Uh, but it, you know, I, at the same time, I'm thinking, hey, I survived cancer. I am not afraid of you. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. So uh, I think uh, I but I had to make a case for why this approach should be used, and I'll I'll let people read the book and make the judgments for themselves. But I hope that people come out of it with a sense of hope mm. that times of crises are actually the very best times in history for us to learn and grow. If we seize them, right? Um, it, you you have to seize them. You have to engage rather than escape. Yeah, that's, that's the essential starting
0: point. Yeah. So talking a little bit more about this, I, I like how you've kind of brought these ideas of truth and relationship very near each other we could go very far down this rabbit hole of truth, right? And understanding that more and what you talk about, you know, objective truth. I'm interested in exploring a little bit more of the context of we have differing truths, right? And this could be whatever, we just have differing ideas about an issue Mm -hmm. or we're from opposite side of of the globe and have very little context for each other's cultural, religious background or you know anything in the other person's life. So when you're looking for this in, in to relate to somebody who does not necessarily share your truth or even your objective truth or might read your book and say, well, I actually disagree with your thesis entirely... Um <laughs> there will be people Yeah.
1: Yes, but you know that's the risk that you take when you write a book. And and you do the same thing in artistic performance. Someone said, Oh, it's easy to write a book. You just cut open a vein and bleed. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and when you're performing, it's the same right. thing. It's an extremely vulnerable place to mm-hmm. be. But someone's got to make the first move. That was sort of how I was yeah. thinking of
0: it. Yeah. Right. And if not you, then who? right right yes.
1: And the way I think of conversation is let's just set aside the question of truth for a moment because people some people say seek the truth, other people say speak your truth. Right. Uh, let's we can at least agree that we're coming at whatever it is that we're trying to talk about from different viewpoints. So I would say, Instead of saying, I have my truth, I would say, I have my viewpoint. Mm. I have my perspective from which I view whatever it is that we're trying to agree on here. Mm. And, and so if I think of it that way, then I'm free from having to engage in a power play. Yeah. That, that I somehow have to use manipulation or even shame. I think we've become a, a dramatically shame-based culture. Yeah. Because people say, well, you you, not only shouldn't say that, you don't have the right to think that. Right? And you should be ashamed of what you have just said. It's different even from when I was growing up where my professors would say, I may disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. We're sort of in a different moment. And I and I think it is just the nature of power relationships and perspective and confusion, all layered over with anxiety, even depression yeah. that people experience. Uh, on a, I mean, fifty three percent of the young adults I work with say they regularly struggle with anxiety and depression.
0: It's incredible, isn't it? Well, I I, I hear so many people, and you know, even of our generation. I, I, Talking about this and and really carrying massive amounts of anxiety, and I think a lot of it, a lot of it has to come down to the the, the environment that we're creating. That people don't feel heard, yeah, right. People don't feel seen yes. a, at all. And and you know, you mentioned the shame, which I think is a really interesting view. But I always think about it. Also, it's easy to to connected to intelligence right and just to say well if you were smarter (laughs) you know (laughs) you wouldn't believe you wouldn't have that viewpoint right or and there's really little of trying to understand the viewpoint and just dismissing it from an intelligence perspective and like wearing an i'm with stupid t-shirt right um (laughs) but we uh, this is really where we are culturally right
1: yeah, you've got to have some explanation for the disagreement that privileges your position. That's sort of how people think of it. And if you can attack another person's intelligence, or their social background, or how they arrived at their thinking, or the fact that they, they haven't really considered it very well. I mean, we do a lot of polling at some Ministries, not because I want to be a polling company, I just want to understand the cultural mm-hmm. moment. And one of the things we found is 81% of people say they think respectful listening is the very best way to talk to a person with whom you disagree. Mm. Only 5% of people say, I respond to disagreement by cutting the other person out of my life. <laughs> do so, you think that
0: data is right? I, I, did, I mean, do you question that if, if that data is an example of where people answer something in light of their best self? Have, when they're actually submitting oh, a survey or, because I, that number yeah. feels high to me. if it, And maybe that's just, you have a great sample set, right? <laughs> of people who actually do want to yeah. engage thoughtfully. But if I were to overlay that to even right, the community in which I live in, that data would be, that would be an overwhelmingly positive number. Yes.
1: Well, it's aspirational. There's a difference between what people do and what they wish they would right. do. Or, or what they would like to be able to do, and I, I'm sort of an optimist, I, I, I hope that if they were well-trained, that they could actually fulfill that desire to listen better and, and to engage more personally in conversation. So I, I think it's hopeful. I think what I'm always trying to do in my polls is figure out where the room is mm-hmm. for agreement, uh, where the room is for potential growth, uh, where people actually are. And that's why I, re- I sample Democrats, Republicans, Independents um, equally. Mm. Actually, it usually skews toward being more Democrat than Republican mm. and increasingly more independent. So I know po- as far as po- politics go, people across the board tend to say, I wish we had more conversation, mm. more dialogue. Mm. And whether they'll actually seek that out is a function of how fearful they feel, Maybe they feel inadequate. I don't know what to say, so I don't want to do anything. Or I don't want to offend people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I'm actually afraid that I'll be canceled. I'll, I'll somehow be ruined in my career or family relationships if I try to engage. It's better just to walk away.
0: I want to bring something in right now that I think could be useful. And this is I, the idea of searching for shared values. Because when I look at people with whom I disagree, well, for example, you and I, we, like we might not agree on some issues, but underneath yeah. our shared values—well, starting with survival, right? But then, survival of those around you, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which is, you know, the basis of our species, I guess. But we're searching for the same values, right? What do we share? Like, I mean, caring for for people around you or in your immediate family, wanting them to be, not just survive, but thrive. And how in your work are you looking for these shared values that kind of can create this bond where you can walk away from a debate, a conversation, some sort of interaction, even feeling closer to that person, though your viewpoints possibly diverged even more.
1: I think it's possible. I, I think your and my relationship is that kind of relationship. Uh, Stephanie, I'm going to tear up. <laughs> Stephanie asked me the other day, who are five people you would want to have for dinner? I said, anybody? Historical, past, present? And she said, yes. And so I named off several. And then I named you.
0: Oh,
1: wow. Thank you. Because I thought, no matter what other conversations taking place, having Tim in the conversation is going to make it better. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like that's, that those shared values you're talking about are so important. Mm-hmm. We have a shared value of a desire for beauty. Mm. Uh, we aspire to mm. justice. Even people who don't agree about truth will still say there is a, there's an ideal we have, mm-hmm. that some things are just and some things are unjust and we want it to be more just we have a desire as citizens to have a productive relationship with our fellow citizens yeah. we want to get along with our neighbors if you if you really think about it the things we have in common those shared values are so important that that it, they can become the basis of of good relationships mm-hmm.
0: let's go down the cancel culture route a little bit i know this is something that's really that goes deep for you. Mm-hmm. You wrote a great long form piece, not a not a book, but a long form article that I read and you have well someone in your life was devastatingly impacted by cancel culture yeah. and and I want to get into this a little bit because it is terrifying. How how do we create change in in this and, and you know what have been your experiences? with this?
1: Well, I had a a friend who was quite outspoken and he, you know, he's one of those guys who likes to poke the bear. And so he would make all of these comments. Well, people, he he wasn't, I don't feel like he was mean about it, but he was definitely trying to provoke controversy. Mm -hmm. And now he was my friend and, There were times where I just, I would cringe when he would say something or write something. Mm -hmm. But he was my friend. And I watched as his university really uh, pushed him out. And it was largely because of the cancel culture at that institution. And I I watched, it was during COVID, and I watched him spiral. And ultimately, he ended up taking his own Mm -hmm. life. I don't... I don't feel bitter at the people who who attacked him because I don't feel that he was ever afraid of being attacked or of attacking back. I mean, he was just sort of that individual. He enjoyed debates. He enjoyed the discussions. He would be perfectly happy uh, tweeting something at you as sitting down and having a cup of coffee mm-hmm. with you. Okay, And he was always like that. But I really felt that I, I felt frustrated and embittered at the... The kind of system that would say the best way to solve our problems is to silence other voices. Mm. And I think what triggered me, Tim, about that is just as a student of history, I look back, for example, at Lenin in the Soviet Union, who his approach was, why would I even have a debate with you? Because if I have a debate with you, then I'm allowing you to speak. Mm. And if you're allowed to speak, then some people might agree with you. So the better thing is to make sure that your voice is silenced. And of course, when people wouldn't be quiet, we have them killed. Right. And, and, and the same thing happened in Nazi Germany and innumerable cultures, sadly, all over the world. We saw similar things happen, where you solve problems by silencing other voices rather than engaging with them. And I felt like based on my friend's experience, that that's, that's the trajectory. If we keep going down this path and we can't figure out how to engage, then we will end up in a place where it's all about power. And power is ultimately about physical force. It has to become about physical right. force.
0: Right. Well, and we're creating a zero-sum game.
1: Right. And that's isn't that interesting? I'm so glad you brought that up because it if only the material world exists and there's only so much to go around, then what we're fighting over is for everything. Right. Like if you, if I have it, if I if you have it, it's because I don't have it. But if you open up the possibility that there are ideas, that there can be innovation, that information is a real thing, that we can have inspiration. If you open up that kind of a world, then all of a sudden We're not just fighting over this toy or that toy, that we can all have what we are looking for, which is that, as you mentioned at the outset, the opportunity to feel heard, to be heard, to be seen, Mm -hmm. and then to somehow together figure out how we're going to move forward.
0: Yeah. So in talking more about cancel culture, what are things that you encourage students you are teaching you do a lot of speaking. Uh, what are solutions that you're putting out there that people can employ just to just to combat this on a, on a personal level?
1: Yeah. There were three things. And, and the first one is just what, in philosophy, we call epistemological humility. Mm-hmm. So for students, when I'm doing this with high school students, I'll just draw a big circle on a whiteboard. And then I'll hand the marker to one of them and say, imagine that this circle represents everything that could possibly be known. Mm -hmm. Now, I want you to come up here, and I want you to make a circle inside the circle about what you Mm -hmm. know. Of course, they come up, and 99% of the time, they just put the tiniest little circle inside the big Mm -hmm. circle, because they can't... They realize, oh, man, of everything that could possibly be known, I don't even remember the formulas I learned in algebra last semester. Right, Right, And and then then I ask them, all right, now I want you to draw a circle of what you think everybody all together in all of humanity knows, and their circle is just a tiny bit bigger than their own circle. Mm. So we have all of this that's unknown to us, that we think is potentially unknown to us, which leads us to a sense of humility, and humility is not backing away from the search for knowledge; it's actually It's actually the intentional pursuit of it, but with recognition of our position. Mm. You know, I'm climbing a mountain. I know where I am in relation to the peak of the mountain. Uh, So that's the first part. The second part is just a time orientation, Tim. And I, I don't know how much time we want to take on this, but when I went through cancer, I realized my time frame is short, but at the same time... I want to engage with people as if the conversation is going to go on forever.
0: Oh, very interesting. So I
1: have both, so I have both this sense of immediacy, but also the sense of patience, at the same time.
0: Hmm.
1: And what I, th- I think is really cool, you know, I love I love to study in the classical world, and you go back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, to this the to Koine Greek was the language that was used at the time, and people thought at the time that's the finest language that could ever be used to express thoughts, and it is very cool. So for example, if you look at the words for time in Koine Greek, uh, there are two dominant words. One is chronos, from which we get our word chronograph. That's clock time. Mm. And the other one is kairos, which refers to opportunity time. Mm. So chronos is about the minutes. Uh, Kairos is about the moments. And, And both of those things happen in a conversation, time actual physical time is passing but moments of discovery are being created uh, do you do you remember uh, Emily Dickinson's poem uh, the Tr- tell all the truth but tell it slant mm. it's this it's a great poem because she she ends with the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind mm. that, so we have to in, allow time to participate in good conversation and to grow. Hopefully you're growing in respect for the other person and the respect for truth and the respect for you know certain viewpoints. And then the third thing is so epistemological humility, time orientation, third thing is curiosity. Mm. And this gets back directly to to your question. Create curiosity. I have learned five conversation altering words. Tell me more about mm. that. Yeah. I do have a viewpoint I hope that you will ask me to share it. I hope that I have a chance to say what I'm thinking. I hope I have a chance to revise what I'm thinking as I think it through aloud. But I I hope more than anything that I can be a curious person in a conversation, Mm. that I can ask questions that will not only allow me to learn, but will allow the other person to learn. And then we grow. And if we're both growing, it, it feels like a win, even if we walk away and say, "I don't think I changed my mind on that policy or whatever at all," but we've grown together. We've we've sort of conquered that battle. Uh, that 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 we're you know all the stuff that we're bringing into a conversation from the outside. You got to win. You know, you got to have a mic drop moment where they just are shamed and right. uh, and just you know to recognize in the middle of all of this, it's going to be a victory if we can carry out this conversation respectfully and lovingly just by expressing curiosity. Mm.
0: I really love this idea of the two different words for time, Chronos um, and Kairos. I've never thought about this in a conversation of challenging myself to consider what if this were a permanently ongoing conversation? How would I interact with this person? How would I? How would I treat them? How would I listen to them? And it reminds me, I've been doing quite a bit of mindfulness practice, and mm-hmm. really working to develop a consistent meditation practice. And and I, I, meditation, not necessarily in a single discipline of the idea, right? Um, like I would I include even prayer in that, and. Um, but this idea of really allowing yourself to be in a moment and to consider whatever is there in that moment. And I think that's really impactful to kind of tie that to the idea of the, the Kairos idea of time of really leaving the clock out of it and considering that it's a completely different paradigm in which you're having a conversation and really being willing to be with whatever presents itself in that conversation.
1: Isn't isn't that one of the hardest things about listening, is that we've got such an awareness of time. I really want to hear you. I've got another meeting in 15 yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, But in really good, you know, in, in meditation and in prayer, you find yourself um losing track of space and time Mm -hmm. and it's it's actually a brain function the part of your brain that is orienting you to space and time begins to uh relax and go dim Mm -hmm. when you're involved in meditation and that's why people say they felt that in meditation they touched the divine Mm -hmm. and i don't i'm not i am not saying that it's just brain function Because there, I, there's actually, I, I believe in an immaterial reality that exists outside of us. It's not just brains; it's our mm-hmm. minds. Uh, but, but it is isn't it interesting how our brains can actually cooperate? Mm. Well, what would happen if we could approach conversations in that yeah. way? I don't even know <laughs> how you would do it, but I know when it happens. Right. When I'm in a conversation and with somebody and we're connecting, and I don't even realize two hours have passed. Mm.
0: Mm. It can be a really intimate thing when you get into that space of a conversation with someone. And it, it can be, I think because we are not really established in practicing that, in that bonus episode of the first season that with my buddy, uh, me and Hannah, and that was, we did that one in person. Which was, mm-hmm. which was great, but we finished, and he commented, he said, I didn't expect this to feel so intimate. And I, mm-hmm. I had had the same experience in, in the room of not quite understanding the energy, right? But when two people are in that zone where they're really fully engaged, um, there's something very deep that happens. And it's incredibly gratifying.
1: You could say we were made for this.
0: Hey everybody, it's Tim. My team and I work really hard to make this show meaningful for all of you, and we'd love to hear from you about what you're liking and also what you might want more of. I'm easy to find on Instagram at MoT Myers that's M-O-T-M-Y-E-R-S and always happy to hear from you via email that's Timothy at TimothyMyers.com Also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would be willing to leave a rating and a review or pass on to a friend, that helps a lot. Back to the show. You mentioned that there were some things that you had jotted down that you were kind of on your mind and your heart to chat about.
1: Well, Tim, I'm thinking of your work as an artist and as a creator. But I was just wondering about the idea of art. You know, you think back to before books were widely printed. People had to copy them out by hand. So not very many people had books. Well, how did people express ideas? And, and I, as I was thinking about it, I realized they expressed their ideas through art. Mm-hmm. Look, you, you, you go to... I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem... I've been to, you know, a lot of places in in France and England and other places where you see beautiful cathedrals, for example. People used architecture as a way to express their ideas. Yes. Before they had books. But people use art to express their ideas. It may actually be the oldest form of the expression of ideas. That you create something that you know says, it speaks for itself but it also says something about everything Mm -hmm. else because of the way it's located not only in physical space but in the minds of those that perceive Mm it. So art is so central to how we think and understand and perceive. And I now understand, I think, why people would say, let's have artistic performances. Maybe that will help draw people together. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Because it really can. Well, it's interesting I'm glad you kind of brought this into the picture because there two things about it I just jotted a couple notes um, I think art and storytelling right I I mean we are're were key ways of communicating ideas before the information age um, and we we know this because it was censored right so you you, you it, it, as soon as something is censored you know there's some power to it right because <laughs> again like we were talking about somebody's you know censoring it because there's information there that they do not want widely distributed right um in a certain right. or in a certain context so this is even why verity wrote an opera called the masked ball that's set in boston <laughs> which it has nothing to do with Boston or anything about America or whatever, but is set in Boston because that was the way to get around the censors, right? In, and yeah. in 19th century Italy. And so he knew that he had to change the context in order to be able to have it performed. And, uh, you know, Mozart was brilliant at this. Um, you know, if we take a, an opera like *The Marriage of Figaro*, where he really makes it's about classism, and and he really beautifully achieves that the people of the highest class in the piece are the most humbled at the end, right? And and yeah. if it's sort of a, a, a down nabby upstairs downstairs kind of story, that the downstairs people. Uh-huh went out and are the happiest at the end, right? And that was a way to sort of address that idea about classism in a a veiled but not so veiled way. And so I, I think you're right that art, architecture, music, storytelling of all different kinds has not only been used to transmit information and ideas, but you also made the human connection part of it. This is for me really important. When you're operating in a paradigm where you are in a shared space, the game changes because there is something beyond language that can happen. In a performance especially, there are moments that never happened before and will never happen again. That's right. We could stop at the end of a phrase, even an eight bar phrase and play it again and it would be different because it's a shared experience between not just the performers, but the listeners, the acoustics in the hall. Um, and people can have wildly different experiences because they connect to it in different ways. But there's something really special that happens there that is for that moment. And when you are present in that moment, it's a real gift. Recordings are a predetermined outcome. And in in bringing it into the nature of conversation, right, that we can create interactions that are really singular by doing the same thing that I try to do as a performer is you, you, you create conditions that are favorable for something great to happen. Right. Which means you're very prepared. Everyone's prepared. You rehearse, you do all, you, you, you do the craft part of it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. in order to get to this place where the gods take over. Yeah. Um, And I I think that's a really magical thing. I had an experience just a couple of weeks ago. I was conducting in Atlanta this gorgeous production of Madama Butterfly. And it was... It was not a perfect performance. But none, none of them are, right? And that's not the pursuit. But it was so incredible. And it was just one of those where things came together in a way between the orchestra and the singers and the audience. And we were also doing an international live stream. So there were, you know, cinema cameras everywhere. And, and it just, I mean, it was emotionally thrilling and exhausting at the same time. Right. But when you're in the moment and you feel connected like that, I get, I get goosebumps thinking about it now. And it's, I really even had to check my emotions a little bit during the performance at some points, right? Just to remind myself, okay, you you do have to lead this thing, right? Um, (laughs) But there is something that can happen, something cathartic that can happen and does happen in a live performance.
1: I see the beauty of it. I'm sensing, I feel like I'm sensing it what your, what your vision is and what you're talking about. I think a lot of people think of art as sort of like the upstairs. Mm, Yeah. And the downstairs is logic, reason, you know, national policy things like that. And then when we need a break, we go upstairs and we get some art. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we think of, we think of relationships actually in the same way. We have our logistical part of our lives but then, when we want a little romance, you know, we go upstairs. Mm. But there really isn't an upstairs downstairs. What if it's all sort of one? Yeah. Uh, and, and and then art is a way of knowing, in the same way that science is a way of mm. knowing, or history is a way of knowing, or theology is a way mm-hmm. of knowing and you you recognize the beauty in each one of those things. I feel like I'm more open to it Tim than I than I was before I went through this cancer mm-hmm. journey. And by the way, I've now been in remission for 14 yeah. months. But every day is a gift. I I don't take them for granted granted anymore because it's there's just too much in every breath mm-hmm. that's meaningful. And, and to be able to stop and reflect on all of it is such a is such a gift.
0: Yeah, I remember you articulating that to me after you had finished treatment and knew that it had gone that it had been successful and that things were heading in the right direction, but articulating that to me that you know you were viewing every day that way. And I think that's something really really magical to that. It's only this moment.
1: That's what you have. In light of all that's transpired before, and in light of all we hope will transpire in the future, engagement is the now. Mm-hmm. It's not treating others as it, it, not objectifying them. What I mean by objectifying is that we're treating them as a product of the past or as a way for us to satisfy our future desires. Mm. That's the very definition of narcissism, by the way. So when you engage in this moment, um, then other people's reality oh, flowers in our own perceptions.
0: Hmm. You have to say the hard thing sometimes. Or listen and be told the hard thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and, and to ask ask for yeah. it. Uh, but you know, when I'm working with young adults, there are a lot of really, really hard conversations. I wish they were all joyful and hopeful, but sometimes it's tough. Mm. You see somebody who's in a really tough situation. I guess I'm learning to just try to talk about the talk and say, I, I want to know what you're hoping will happen in this conversation. Mm. Are you looking for a breakthrough? Or are you just wanting to have someone who will hear you? Right. Um, I want you to know that I see you, I hear you, I value you with whatever capability I have. I don't have all of the time in the world and all of the empathy in the mm-hmm. world. But if there was a possibility for growth, if there was a barrier that could be torn down, would you want to go mm-hmm. there? Um, you know, and I, I think this, I just, for some reason, I thought it was this very strange verse in the Gospels that, where Jesus goes to the city called Jericho, and this man, blind, cries out, heal me. And Jesus walks up to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) (laughs) If you were a disciple, you'd just be pounding your forehead. Well, duh, he's blind. But isn't it interesting that Jesus did not assume that the blind man wanted to see? Right. Because there are times in our lives where we are... sick and do not want to be well because we've kind of wrapped our identity around our sickness Mm. to the point where we would feel that a part of us that we value would cease to exist if we were healed. And it isn't just with physical sickness. It's true in every area. It's true in relationships. It's true in our work.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to ask yourself the question relating to something specific what would you lose by giving up X? And that can be even, you mentioned a, a, a sickness or that can some something to which you identify and that creates some sense of identity, context, safety, you know, a lot uh, there are a lot of different things involved here. but you know, what would you lose if you gave up? That I think is a really powerful question.
1: Well, when you think you think about it in that way, you realize that your attachments are really proxies or stand-ins yeah. for what you're really looking for. And, and and being willing to give those up takes a great deal of um, bravery, mm-hmm. or I suppose anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, but hopefully, it's bravery. <laughs> right. That you, you say, I'm going to remove that attachment because the pursuit beyond it is valuable, mm-hmm. but you've got to have a really high view of life and you've got to have a really high val of view of other people mm-hmm. to get there. I can't treat people as objects in my path. And, um, uh, man I just you know you mentioned driving well that's just the worst that car is in front of me is in my way yeah, yeah. you know it, it's an object I, I'm not thinking about the person in the car whether they're worried about whether they're going to be able to get into the correct lane to make the turn that they need to to go do what they need to do mm-hmm. it's just I just want to get around them yeah right and, and so how much of my life am I willing to admit that's that's my approach mm-hmm. and It's not getting me where I want to go. And maybe it could actually be an opportunity for flourishing for other people if I could change my mind about that.
0: That's right. That's right. Coming back to the engagement piece, being willing to take on what someone else needs in that moment, which is a huge part of listening, right? When I'm listening to someone, I'm, I'm a fixer. I'm like, I've got a strategy for that. I've got a framework for that, <laughs> but that's not necessarily taking into consideration what that person needs.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, they and and you you've been you've had a coach, so and, and I recommend it. Everybody who you know, we all need coaches. We all need counselors, therapists. Yeah. We we need people. Uh, who are a little bit removed from our situation to help us see it more clearly. Uh, But when you, when you're in that coaching situation, you know, you have this coach constantly asking you, how can I support Mm -hmm. you? Because we're not interested in what, in the moves that have to take place 10 or 15 moves from now. What's, what is the next move? And then we'll evaluate that move. Is that, did that get you where you wanted to Mm -hmm. go? Oh, yeah, well, not really. I realized I wasn't really wanting to go where I thought I was yeah. going to go. And I think it's, I'm, I, you know, but the clarity that comes out of the experience is, is useful. I wonder if we could, in, in relationships, what that would look like to sort of set people other, f- set others free from our expectations of a certain outcome. Mm-hmm and then just be there.
0: Well, that leads me right up to the question. (laughs) What would the world be like with more listening?
1: The world with more listening would have more pauses, Mm -hmm. more silence. Because even as you and I talk, I notice a lot of their pauses. Why? Not because we don't know what to say next, it's because we're thinking through what's just been said. Mm-hmm. And at least that's what we aspire to. Yeah. There'd be more room for silence. And I think there would be more room
0: for growth. One of the other questions I typically ask based on our conversation. And the the question I like to ask is if you could transmit a brief message to everybody in the world that everyone would understand, (laughs) if you could broadcast it, what would it be? But I want to shift that to if you could go and deliver it and be with this idea and them, what would it be?
1: Hmm. I think at the heart of what I want to communicate, now I'm, I'm specifically thinking of the young adults I work mm-hmm. with, who I have so much hope for, for the future, and are so mired in anxiety, is that you you are smart and you're here for a reason. Mm. And I see it,
0: mm. and I see you. Mm. That's amazing. This has been incredible. Thank you.
1: I've loved every minute of it.
0: Thank you for listening to listening on purpose hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review that really helps. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, advance notice of some upcoming special events and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com and from there connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter of Maduras Media and Yours Truly. Creative Strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose.